Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Haran. Welcome to this episode of Connecting the Docs. We are looking into Appalachian culture with this series, and we're continuing down a, a discussion of music. But first, my guests. I've got Josh Hager. Hello again. Brooke Chuka. Hi, everyone. I'm the Outreach Specialist for the State Archives. Shauna Clark. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. Bree Dumont. Hello. I'm currently the intern for the Oral History for the State Archives. Excellent. And Fiona Allen. Hi, I'm the other intern, uh, oral history intern. Great, thanks very much. Yeah, so today, as I said, we're going to be looking into music culture of uh, the Appalachian portion of the state, the western portion of the state. And I thought uh, we can start, I think, Bree, you might have something you would like to share with us. Yeah, so I first got interested in this. I am currently living in Cleveland County in the lower part of the state. And in 2014, we opened the Earl Scruggs Center um, in the former court. It used to be the original courthouse um, for Shelby, North Carolina. And so um, I sort of started getting interested in when we were, you know, batting around some ideas. Um, Earl Scruggs was an important part of uh, bluegrass and bluegrass can trace its roots back to Appalachian music. So I thought that would be an interesting way to get started looking at Appalachia and their music history. So North Carolina has a rich musical history and the development of music in the Appalachian region has a lot to do with that. Now, we could spend hours discussing North Carolina and its music, but for today's episode, we're going to focus on the history of ballads, banjos, and fiddles in the region. So for generations, music of the Scot-Irish immigrants has been credited as being the foundation of the rich musical history of the mountains, but it's much more complicated than that. Influences of musical culture from indigenous communities, the Scots-Irish, and enslaved people all contributed to the unique development of sound from the area. Immigrants of the British Isles are credited with bringing the fiddle to the Appalachian region in the 18th century. They considered the fiddle to be a prized possession, one that was treated with great respect and handed down from generation to generation. Fiddle players would often accompany ballad singers at community gatherings, which were one of the few forms of entertainment in an often isolated region. This traditional style is still popular today, and we have recordings of traditional songs on their fiddles. We're here at my dad's saying we, I mean, my name's H.D. Miller, and my dad's hired Miller. And we haven't played in it in a long time, but dad, he's played all over the country, I reckon. Um, yeah, used to, that is. But anyhow, uh, we thought we'd get together and try it a little bit. We'd probably make all kinds of mistakes, but whoever listens to this thing, just kindly overlook it, if we do. So uh, he's going to start off with one here called, uh, What Makes You Do Me Like You Do Do Do. Um, This is so interesting that the fiddles are passed down from generation to generation because in my family we have a generational banjo. Um, It was my great uncle's and I don't know if that means it was my grandmother's brother or her uncle, but it's been passed down since that person purchased it. So there's a little generational musician in my family too, or musical instrument. 
One of the things you mentioned that I find interesting there is that the fiddle came over from British settlers. Uh, it, it makes me wonder, you know, I'm not, you know, all of us here are more scholars on American history, but I mean, I'd be interested to see, you know, early modern England, was the fiddle a sort of opening up to the other classes of the violin and orchestral music that was more considered highbrow? Um, I wonder if that would be the case because obviously the, what we would call popular music did not exist yet. Uh, but maybe this is the closest thing and, and they use the instruments that they had and it's that's when you start getting the delineation between the violin and the fiddle. So if, if any musical historians are listening to this episode, which you might be, uh, chime in and let us know if you know you know, how that split happened all the way back in merry old England all those years ago. And I think it's also fascinating, particularly we're talking about the Miller piece that, that we're, we, we have here. It's part of a state historic preservation register nomination. And, and that, you know, it's, it's really interesting. The, the phrase was highbrow, I think you said, Josh. And, you know, the fiddle was more popular music and, and not as orchestral or as grand. And so to think that somebody who learned how to fiddle would then, as a result of their work with the fiddle, later on get recognition and put on the on the national register for contributions in that field i mean i'm not sure that they would have thought of it that way you know it's just sort of everyday music and yet it's getting recognized in this way i think that's really fascinating yeah i think that it's it's interesting how class impacts the music that we listen to and and especially in the appalachian region how so much of identity is related back to class and then also back to music so how mountain music is really a signifier of identity in in that way that's an interesting concept that i hadn't thought of before fiona and i i'm also wondering too how music in this region also conveyed information you know we talked Mm -hmm. a little bit about how these fiddlers would accompany ballad singers and i don't think we have a, a clip of a ballad but it makes me think of uh you know how ballads are traditionally songs that told a story or narrative story and it maybe I'm veering a little off course, but you know it makes me think of murder ballads because that's a subgenre that came out of the Appalachian region. And um, I, some folks may not realize that those murder ballads um, were often based on true stories. Often they they depicted violence against women. There are some songs that flip the script on that. There's some really interesting scholarship on this about how. Appalachia in the 19th century was experiencing tensions between traditions of the past and then these emerging emerging notions of modernism and that industrial era in the in um, the United States. And so there's some if you look through a feminist lens, there's this um, this idea that women in these murder ballads represent new cultural modernism that threatens the status quo. So yeah, a lot of really cool stuff there that we we could do an entire podcast on. And in fact, we have. But that's just a little foray into murder ballads. Um, I know Fiona had uh, may have something to add because we, we talked about that before. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it was, we listened to it growing up. Like, yeah. my dad would be like, oh, let's put on murder ballads on the drive tonight. I'm like, I'm seven. <laughs> but, but it was such a part, it's um, still, it's such a part of the tradition, I think. Um, it absolutely is. And um, my dad was closer to like our Irish heritage. And so he would play like old Irish ballads. Um, 
as well as Appalachian Ballads. But I just remember, like, the Girl in Knoxville one, really, um, where it's, it's from the perspective of the murderer. Like, it's a, it's the person who's singing is the person who's committing the murder, which I always, um, was very scary to me as a child to, like, be in that, like, perspective. Um, but I think that it's really interesting in that feminist perspective to think about, like, how, um, these stories and songs were a way to give um, women back their stories because so often women get murdered and then that's the end. Like there's no conversation, there's no communication, their lives are just over, but they're immortalized in these songs. And I think that that in some way gives autonomy back to somebody who doesn't have it anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't think it's an yeah. accident that you see murder ballads still as an undercurrent of modern country western music mm-hmm. you know Dixie the song chicks. i'm thinking of you know Dixie yep. chicks, yeah, but also the night hey, the lights went out the in georgia now aren't they wait a minute oh yeah yeah they're just the chicks yeah, they now did. the night yeah. the lights went out in georgia i mean that's you know a murder ballad of a very interesting kind uh so yeah there's a lot of modern examples in the country genre uh, that I think connects into the traditional Appalachian mm-hmm. ballad. Yeah, and what's interesting is when, you know, the first bluegrass singers, a lot of them used ballads from Appalachia. So a lot of those yeah. music, you know, they were inspired by, and a lot of them, the first songs that they recorded um, were ballads that they probably passed down from family member to family member. Yeah, and so the interest surrounding the Appalachian music first came to pass in the late 19th to early 20th century, when an interest in preserving British ballads led many to western Northern North Carolina. So those who traveled to the area believed that due to its isolation, the songs were preserved in some of their truest forms. So a majority of the so- songs discovered in Appalachia were not written down, but sung and passed down between primarily mothers and daughters. So you got that, again, we have that, you know, from mom, mothers to daughters. The matrilineal line. Right. And the most uh, well-known of these musical historians was Englishman Cecil Sharp, who wrote in his diary, the cult of singing traditional songs is far more alive than it is in England or has been for 50 years or more. And this is when he was here, I believe it was in in 1916, um, traveling, trying to collect songs in the Appalachian area. So he was introduced to the area by Olive Dame Campbell, and she herself was a northern transplant, um, originally from Massachusetts, my home state. And um, so she would help Sharp collect a wide variety of ballads and songs, and that included over 200 she herself had collected while living near Asheville. So some consider Sharp's publication, The English Folk Songs of the Southern Appalachians, to be one of the most complete collections of music from the area. However, it does exclude music from the indigenous and black communities located throughout the mountains and credits just the British immigrants with the vast and rich musical culture that exists here in Appalachia. British imperialism. How yes. <laughs> but, you know, I find it interesting that you mentioned that they uh, that the scholarship, such that it was, it was interested in the Appalachians because it was considered isolated. And we talked about that in our last podcast with dialects, you know, so you see sort of a a culture emerging that is in its own, which is really interesting because, you know, if you look at other places around the world, the cultures do generate sometimes you think of maybe national culture or regional, but this is a very quick cultural development compared to something like, you know, mm-hmm. in African communities or European communities. It's happening 
very, I mean, he's going over in 1915 and most European settlement of the Appalachians isn't really happening until the early 19th century because that's when land grants are starting in that area. You have some people there in the 1700s, but not that many. It's very sparse. So you're talking about a fully developed, isolated culture in the span of 100 years. Anthropologically speaking, that's really quick. But it, it develops its own dialect, its own music, and I find that fascinating. Well, and I that would be because of the geography, right? It's just too difficult to, to move from community to community, right? That'd be my best guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder. I also wonder, Bree. You know, it's, this is an archives podcast. We may we say he recorded the songs. Do we know if he was writing the songs down as you know the music books and with you know the notes and things, or was he using things like wax cylinders to actually get audio? Do we know if that if it was a mix? I, I think that actually started later. You know, I think, you okay. know, from when the research that I was looking through, I think his was mostly writing down what he was, you know, the, the words and, um, you know, the music. And it wasn't till the 1920s, I believe, that they actually started recording some of these songs. Um, That's what I thought. But I'm sure that our listeners would be interested to know that, too, that it's, you know, just recording, writing it down, you know, so then it performed elsewhere. We don't have the the Cecil Sharp wax cylinders in, in anybody's collection. Yeah, they were publishing books as, you know, it goes even back to the 1850s when this really started and, you know, slowly moved over to our area. Um, there were a lot of, you know, music scholars that were doing this and, and mostly, it, you know, of course they didn't have the recording technology in the early, you know, in that part of the 1850s, but, um, and, the, you know, the recording wasn't even that great, even when Cecil, because he was one of the late, I mean, he was a very late bloomer to coming into the area in 1916. And so, you know, I don't know if that would even be consistent or if they would even, some of them would even have existed still today just because the wax that, you know, just the um, corruption, because I know we don't have a lot left over from that time period, unfortunately, because of um, the lack of, you know, technology at that time. But yeah, so most of the musical scholars during that time we're just simply going and, you know, writing them down and then publishing books with all of the ballads and the music so people, you know, could then create their own music with those ballads. And we actually have a, uh, thank you, Brie, by the way. We actually have in our collections, um, in our private collections, we have several songbooks uh, from not necessarily the Appalachian area, but we have some private collections from the Piedmont of people who had collected songbooks that they were played for pianoforte or other instruments i think some of the earlier ones are in the 1800s so predating cecil sharp and some of those songbooks include traditional spirituals both african-american as well as appalachian ballads uh so uh, check that out if you're interested just check out uh, look for music or songs in our private collections guide or in uh, doc or online catalog you'll find some interesting places to search for for those. Cool. So I I would love to talk a little bit. You mentioned about um, African-American hymns and folk songs. One thing uh, in Appalachian music that 
is really credited to Black Americans is the banjo. The banjo, often referred to as a banjo in early texts dating back to the 16th century, was brought to the area from West Africa by enslaved people. Early banjos were constructed from gourds or pumpkins and were first referred to being in, the North, in North Carolina as early as 1787 from the diary of William Antimore, kept while traveling through the state. This is not a single definitive answer of how the banjo made its way to Appalachia, but some historians have surmised that the credit could go to traveling minstrel shows, circuses that traveled through the area, or Black railroad workers who brought the instruments with them while constructing the Western North Carolina Railroad in, 1850, in the 1850s. One aspect of the banjo that is not yet fully understood is how the instrument transitioned from one predominantly played by Black musicians to becoming one dominated by white musicians. One disadvantage of preserving Appalachian music during this time period was contributions made by Black and Indigenous musicians were ignored in favor of safeguarding the music of European settlers. Okay, so I did a little research real quick. And it, I think it went from the, so it came over, you know, from West Africa and how it transitioned into a musician played predominantly by white musicians was because of the Blackface minstrel groups that came back. And I know you mentioned that, um, that, you know, banjos were played through these minstrel, traveling minstrel groups, but it was blackface minstrel groups that I think might have been the reason why it probably transitioned from black. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, um, in, in the research that I was doing, there's a lot of, you know, nobody could definitively um, say this is what it was. And that mm -hmm. was one of the ones, but, you know, um, I actually kind of like the idea that that was part of it. Um, some said the circuses where they had black um, acts that were playing the banjo and they just started to transition. And that's how the black face minstrel shows started to develop. And then um, the one I really, really liked was the, the one that it was the black workers from the railroads bringing you know, their own forms of entertainment um, because they could make a banjo from a gourd. So they would just, you know, if they didn't have one with them, they could quickly make one. Because I think there's a, I, I couldn't find anything to prove, but Charlie Poole supposedly, uh, the first banjo that he played was made from a gourd. And so I thought that was just an interesting transition that, you know, you could figure out that a banjo was just one of those things that you could transition um, and make from yeah. just whatever you had available. Yeah. So. That, that. Interest, it's so interesting, Shauna, because basically what, what, what that's, I mean, under that cause and effect, it went from black instrument to racist caricature of black right. instrument <laughs> to then being used sincerely by white musicians for their own creativity. Such a weird, I mean, of course racism is going to be involved in any transition in this time period, right? But it's just like the irony that it went from being a racist caricature to being the symbol of the genre itself is, you know, with, with fiddle. It's, that's, that's insane. I mean, I yeah. guess it kind of makes sense if you grew up, you know, going to these shows and it was your family's form of entertainment because it was a whole show, not just, you know, them playing this mu musical instrument, but, you know, they, they had like three different acts and it was, you know, a whole, um, you know, there was a comic section, you know, for laughs and stuff and then you know the musical portion um but that makes sense that they would bring that those songs home and try to play them you know to right. their kids or you know to remember the good times that they had at these shows that they would go to for i guess maybe even the show might have been a big 
thing for them being so rural if it came to their you know hometown that they would go and everybody would see these you know shows and it would be a big moment and they'd want to keep that with their family right. and then it would make sense that you know black people want it would want to distance themselves from that imagery that they would perpetuate um because who would want to be you know it's start, that started the caricatures of you know right. black people as lazy and you know mm-hmm. only good for a laugh or you know these um slaves the slave that known as slaves in you know people's eyes and servants specifically sorry yeah and those black minstrel blackface minstrel shows were i mean they were traveling through the you know I, I want to say the 1940s, they were still being done. I can't remember the exact dates, but I mean, those, those were still traveling. Those, that was acceptable. I mean, you know, some of our first um, recorded movies or shows had, you know, white actors in blackface portraying black characters. And, you know, and that continued throughout. It wasn't just black because then you had, um, you know, them portraying Asian and, and other, you know, uh, minorities. So that was just kind of something that historically started with these, you know, which would become vaudeville, but started out as the minstrel shows and developed from there. So, yeah, I don't know if um, if, if it's Bing Crosby himself, but certainly in two of Bing's most famous films, you're talking about Holiday Inn and you're talking about White Christmas in both. There's in Holiday Inn, there's actually a minstrel and he's in blackface. Bing mm-hmm. himself is in fl- blackface. And then in, in, in uh, White Christmas, he's lamenting the disappearance of these minstrel shows. There's a, there's a whole number in the middle about how they miss this stuff. And to me, it's interest- another thing that was interesting is this, this idea of, I wonder if it, there was sort of an, an irony in there. I, I know that you know, in a much, much more benign way, people use words ironically and then eventually end up adopting them and becoming part of the thing that they were trying to make fun of by being ironic and so i'm wondering if this is what happened here that that one generation was like look at this this is you know what we're going to make fun of one white mm-hmm. generation was like well let's make fun of and then sub- either them they themselves or subsequent sort of missed on the irony and said hey this is pretty good and it flipped the script right yeah, and it, it kind of, it's one of those things, like while I was doing the research, one of the things, you know, that they almost use the minstrel against, and that was a tradition in West Africa. They were called Grigo, I think it was how you pronounced it, and they were actually traveling, you know, that would equate to being a traveling minstrel throughout um, the West African region, and that's how they kind of surmise maybe that, you know, the music came through is, is when they went through when they were captured and then brought over, but it was, you know, a tradition that for generations for you know millennia were happening in West Africa and then to use that to then subvert black voices in black music <laughs> just was kind of like wow that yeah. yeah this makes me think at some point John we could do a mini series on unintended consequences like showing in our collections where something results from something that you don't think has any relation to it and like the strange connections that you can find in our in our collections. I think that'd be a really fun mini series to do. Yeah, that's that's great. A little preview of what's to come. So now this banjo uh, that you referred to earlier. How, so how long has my it, family banjo? The family the banjo. Family yeah, banjo. yeah, yeah. How long okay. has that been in your family? 
I don't know the exact time, but it's been around since my mother, since before my mother was born and she's in her fifties. So it's, it's been around for a while. Um, it, for the past like three decades, it was kept in a closet in my grandma's house. Um, nobody knows how to play it, but it exists as a family heirloom. We don't have a lot of heirlooms, but the banjo is one of them. And it's broken. Like the whole, the back of it isn't attached. So nobody could play it even if they wanted to. I tried to play it in high school. I tried to learn. It didn't, was not successful. Oh, no. plucks. Oh, plucks. Yeah. Um, but do, I mean, much more seriously, I, I think what you mentioned there, Fiona, with the appropriation of African-American music uh, to white i mean this is not isolated obviously to appalachian music right modern rock and roll right is an evolution of traditional blues and jazz which comes with african american community so this is not isolated and if anything it accelerates becomes more prevalent throughout the 20th century throughout american culture but it, it is a tragedy in my opinion that the you know perception of Appalachian music and this rich heritage, which it deserves to have the you know the, the cultural significance, people tend to assume that it's just a white cultural significance, and that's like you said, it's not the truth at all. You would think that if you were reading Cecil Sharp, and you know looking at popular culture and whether it's a positive or a negative portrayal, thinking about people like Earl Scruggs even, but that eliminates a huge part of the legacy and the history, which I think it's one of our missions at the State Archives to make sure that our stories that we tell from our records include all North Carolinians, regardless of race or background. And I'm really glad you brought that up, Fiona, because it really fits in with our mission to make sure that we do share that this story is not just a story of white settlers in Appalachia playing these songs. It's a story of all these different cultures, uh, some subjugated, but their contribution should not be ignored and should be lifted up instead. Yeah, and I think that it it also goes back to Appalachian history being um, really thought of in the in the popular narrative as white history, when that's completely not the case. Um, Appalachia had centuries of history before white people even arrived, and. Um, and then in recent history, there have there, everybody like, sorry, I'm getting too passionate. I got to chill out. <laughs> but yeah, Appalachian history is broad reaching and it's diverse and it's beautiful. And if we don't tell it from that perspective, then we're not telling a true history of the region. Um, enslaved people in Appalachia and also free black people in Appalachia made huge, important advancements to all areas of life in Appalachia and contributions. And if we're not recognizing those, then we're not, then we're doing a disservice to history as a whole. Right. Yeah. And it was, you know, while doing the research, you know, I think I found one book that was recently written, you know, and that was one of the things that they complained about, that they really can't find many black banjo players. And, you know, while I was doing my research, um, two people from this area that kept coming up were Libby Cotton and Etta Baker, which were both guitarists. And I know Libby Cotton, both African-American or black women that um, basically revolutionized. Uh, Libby Cotton was left-handed, so she had to teach herself how to uh, play the guitar left-handed. Um and recently, now that there's been more exploration that way, um, you know, I work with children, and so I order a lot of children's books, and we actually are getting a lot more biographies. And one of the biographies we recently ordered was for Libby Cotton. 
And so it's, it's really fascinating. I wish, you know, I could have found a way to tie it more into what we were looking at, but um, they're both, you know, both Edda Baker and Libby Cotton are both people worth exploring, both guitarists, both from, you know, the Piedmont area of, of North Carolina who uh, revolutionized blues and jazz music through the guitar. Libby Cotton's Shake Sugary is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's a great song. You should look it up if you're listening. Go ahead and press the pause button. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you back. Like what you hear, but Raleigh is too far inland to get your history on? It's a four-hour drive. Well, come on down to the Outer Banks History Center in Manio, North Carolina, where we can serve you up a steaming slab of archival goodness with every visit. We got photographs, maps, books, manuscript collections, and oral history. If you want to know it, we're willing to show it at the Outer Banks History Center in Manio. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. Did you like it? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> I told you. All of her music, it's just so, like, it's so good. I, she's one of my favorite musicians. Once I had an old gray mask, once I had an old gray mask. So while musical scholars like Cecil Sharp were important in preserving Appalachian music, it was the musicians, beginning in 1920s, who would guarantee that it would survive today. Bascom Lamar Lunsford was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, but enjoyed playing the banjo. He self-titled himself the Minstrel of the Appalachians and the Squire of South Turkey Creek. So in 1922, he would record a number of mountain songs, which often combined ballads accompanied by the fiddle or banjo, or oftentimes both. He would help establish the mountain dance and Folk Festival, which is a yearly celebration of Appalachia and its music, and it will actually have its 95th anniversary this August of 2022. Um, And just as a little trivia, Pete Seeger, which is one of my mom's favorite musicians, was inspired to play the banjo after hearing Lunsford play at the festival in 1936. Um, Pete Seeger's father was another one of those music scholars, so they would travel down there during the summer to um, explore Appalachian music and just music as a whole and so um, and actually you can actually if you have a chance to get to the Library of Congress they do have Lunsford's recordings there. That's so neat. While Lunsford primarily stayed local, Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers would travel to various mill towns playing their music before they found success with Columbia Records in New York. Their song Don't Let Your Deal Go Down would become a best-selling hit in 1925, and the group would go on to record over 60 songs in the next five years. This would bring the music of Appalachia natural, national, sorry, but unfortunately sales would dwindle largely to the Great Depression. Poole would die of alcohol poisoning in 1931, but his music would make a resurgence in the 1960s and would be an inspiration for a variety of musicians, including John Mellencamp and the Grateful Dead. The archives has a vast collection of North Carolina folklore periodicals, first published in 1948. In the early years of the magazine, a selection of each was dedicated to the ballads, including occasional ballad hunting articles written by people who had traveled the area to research ballads and meet those who have preserved them for generations. Each article would include the music and lyrics after the story about how the authors of the piece came about discovering the song or songs. And then here's a quote by... um, Betty Baden Williams and Charles Williams from North Carolina Folklore, Volume 5, Number 2, from December of 1957. 
We find the folk music of other lands most fascinating, but our first love is still our own North Carolina music. It's outstanding in the field of folk music. We must preserve and treasure it for it is a vital part of our cultural heritage. Well, how lucky are we uh, in North Carolina to have that cultural heritage and to have the Arts Council and their folklore periodicals to to study it. Yeah, we're real lucky to live in North Carolina. I say it every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and those folklore publications are also, I think, available through the state library, and then the we have a folklore. A collection in the state archives as well from the it's a state agency that collected material on folklore that includes some of these publications as well as a variety of other stories and arts that our processing unit worked on for the better part of several years to get ready for research so if you want to dive into the folklore collection for North Carolina please come in and do and look at those collections they are it is a massive collection that has a lot in there, including a lot on Appalachian music and culture. So you will not be disappointed. There is something in there for you to discover. I guarantee it. Yeah, and and I think uh, on that note, it might be a good place to close. If the if if there isn't anything else anybody wants to jump in with. Thank you so much, Bree, for this beautifully researched story that you've told today. Thanks yeah, for helping thanks me to tell everybody Thank for. <laughs> For putting all this together and and, and it was I music to our ears. There you go. I certainly <laughs> learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's and great. And let us know your stories about Appalachian music too. Uh, we want to hear how they resonate in your life. Do you have a family instrument that is an heirloom, or do you have songs that you've you've, you've a passed down, song or songs perhaps. that you sing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know. We're, we'll look we'll look for that and. Uh, thanks everybody again for sitting in with me and, and teaching me about North Carolina's musical past. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People, at ncarchives.wordpress.com.